I think I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just, uh, we ask that, that you would reveal your presence to us here. We know when we say, come Holy Spirit, we know we say it with the knowledge that, that you were here first and you were already at work. So Father, would you help us to join you in that work now? Father, would you meet us where we are? Would you love us and not leave us where we are? Would you allow your word to connect? Would that connection call us to your mission and to activity in that mission? So would you speak to us now? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask for a little bit of participation. I'm giving you notice of that because I know that that isn't something that we are really a fan of. It takes a little bit of warm-up, even though, you know, we've got the coffee flowing like at 9 o'clock. You can come and start getting ready for that. Um, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to ask for some participation in a second. You might actually have to raise your hand. So be warned. Uh, last week, we kicked off our journey through the book of Ephesians. This is going to be a journey that will take us all the way to Advent, which I'm really excited for, which is rare for me. You know, I hardly ever get excited for Christmas and the holidays. Um, but last week we got, we got, man, we, we got to a good start last week in the book of Ephesians. We got two verses deep into the letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. We saw how even in those, just those first two verses, we saw Paul present the depth of what relationship with God truly is. In two verses, it was so deep. Today is more of the same. He continues his opening statement in a way that encapsulates the gospel in really in a very brilliant way. He distills the essence of following Jesus by continuing the theme of identity, both ours and the identity of God, and calling us to take seriously the reality of what happens when we choose to follow Jesus. Now, this is where I'm going to ask for some participation, and this really is uh, for the safety of the congregation. If you utilize punctuation in text messages, would you please raise your hand? Okay. If Oh, no, no, you got to keep them up. Keep them up. If you, if you point out gr grammatical errors on social media, would you either raise your hand or keep your hand up if you raised it before? No, no, keep it up. You, you can't, nobody can put their hand. Well, this is growing here. So if you now, hands in the air, if you are either correct grammar in social media or if you use punctuation in text messages. Now, if you read things and edit it as you're reading, all right. So, if your hand, now, yeah, Reno's got both hands up and he's got a foot in the air. If, if you are near somebody with their hand up, would you please take note of where these people are? We got, oh, Larry's hand, dang it. Larry and Sarah, any other medical professionals that don't have their hand in the air, we need to watch the folks that do, because they might actually connect. 
Paul might cause seizures today. You can put your hands down now because I know some of you are like, man, how long is he going to talk? But if you punctuate your text messages, if you point out grammatical er errors on social media, if you find yourself editing the things that you're reading, Paul seriously might give you a seizure today. We are about to see what really, this is over, uh, over 200 Greek words in our passage today. With no punctuation, this is a run-on, sen- uh, a run-on sentence for the record books. It is about the same length as the Gettysburg Address. And Paul wrote what might be one of the most amazing sentences in the history of the world. He just didn't punctuate it. This sentence that we're about to to read together, verses 3 through 14, one sentence that folks came along later and decided we we needed punctuation. You know that those, you know, whoever thought to do that definitely would be correcting people on social media. But this sentence puts everything on the table. Now, last week we talked about how knowing our identity means that we have recognized, experienced, and responded to the grace of God. And as a response to that grace, the result is peace. Peace in the midst of external inputs. Peace regardless of circumstances. Peace that we all need. In this run-on sentence that we're about to explore, Paul robs us of the notion that we can be of Jesus and also be just barely getting by on just getting, on, getting along street. That's a quote from Brad that I almost botched. Paul robs us of the notion that if we are of Jesus, that we can be barely getting along. He robs us of the notion that we can be just barely getting by. Paul's about to present to us the stark reality of the inbreaking of Jesus into our lives, and from eternal past to eternal future, we have been and are being blessed. And because of that reality, we cannot be just be getting by. The reality of this sentence is that victory is. Nothing that, that we can see, hear, experience, or realize can change the fact that Jesus is king and our salvation is real. Now, come on. That's something that we probably should respond to as well, right? Nothing can change the fact that, that Jesus is real, our salvation is real, all of this that we see, the, all of the, the uh, external inputs that we have can do nothing because victory is. Paul will point to that for those that have received Christ. That reality, the only thing left for us to do is praise God because everything else is squared away. We are not get, just getting by. We are purchased by the blood of Christ, chosen by the Father, and blessed by the Holy Spirit by sealing us for a future redemption that goes beyond what we could imagine on our own. All of this 
all of those things, underscored by the fact that you were chosen. Purchased by the blood of Christ. Awesome. Sealed by the Spirit. That's amazing. But you were thought of and chosen by the living God. All of this in one sentence that begins with grace and builds to glory. Watch out for the grammar folks as we get into this. We have removed all the punctuation as it was intended. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the run-on sentence. All right. Grace. <laughs> Often in, in, uh, in the body of Christ, we are given examples to live out what we know. And so we can extend... All right, so my version that I've got here has no punctuation, so here we go. I tried. I will not be able to get this in one breath, so when I pause, it's not punctuation. It's just that I need to breathe. All right. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, was, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ even before he made the world. God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with his wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God, for he has chosen us in advance. He makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles would have have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we could praise and glorify him. That's all we need. Have a good day. All right. Now I need to catch my breath a little bit after that. That was one sentence. That is awesome. And it just continues to build. And I just imagine what was, first of all, what was going through Paul's head as he was kind of dictating this? And think about the poor scribes that, like, these are not like, like you know, pens that we have. Like, they had to, like, dip back into, or, or imagine if they were, like, trying to put this onto a tablet. What a jerk Paul was. Can you imagine, like, like writer's cramp? I think about those things and I pray for those people because they capture this stuff for us. This amazing run-on sentence, as long as the Gettysburg Address, over 200 Greek words, no punctuation. This just exemplifies so much of, of Paul, but also of the gospel because the only thing that Paul could do was get it out. 
all he could do was get it out. And it is brilliant. Also, the content, not just how he did this, but the content of what he wrote, the only thing that we can do is say this is depth. Paul's sentence builds upon itself, revealing theological truth that he rightly calls the mysteries of God. The reality that we are chosen for adoption, which we're going to be spending some time on, chosen for adoption because of his love rather than because of our actions to earn it. The availability of this adoption for those that have faith activated faith, a realized faith that moves the faith-haver towards taking on the very essence of our Savior, we see it so clearly in this passage. The problem with this, though, this idea of being adopted, this idea of being chosen, many who believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, Many who believe that Jesus did what he said that he did. Many will never accept or step into the reality that they are chosen by God because of his unfailing love. Many will stay in the place of, of I'm unworthy of being chosen, so that can't be true. Some will progress to that place of, well, if I work hard enough and earn it, then I could be chosen. But this run-on sentence of Paul robs us of the notion that, one, that we can work to be chosen. He makes the emphatic point that because God chose to choose, you are chosen. This is a linchpin to Christianity, as well as being one of the most difficult concepts to grasp. But failure to embrace it means remaining a spiritual infant. Being unable to grasp the reality that you were chosen. I hope also, before we go further, I hope that you are including yourself in the you when I say you. You meaning all, and all meaning all. Failure to grasp our chosenness keeps us in spiritual infancy. Paul talks about this in another letter he wrote, the first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of this world? Responding to our identity in Jesus is the thing that pulls us out of spiritual infancy. The metric that Paul provides in that letter to, to the church in Corinth is brilliant. Because it leaves us to the place of considering what jealousy and quarreling actually reveals. Jealousy and quarreling 
I'm sure this isn't something that touches anybody's life, right? There's not a lot of jealousy or quarreling that, that we deal with, right? Come on, there's got to be some kind of, I'll make you put your hands in the air again. <laughs> jealousy and quarreling demonstrates insecurity. Jealousy and quarreling, demonstrating insecurity, it, it's a lack of the security that comes from knowing that we're adopted. It's the lack of security that know, uh, the security of knowing that we are the beloved of the Father. Jealousy and quarreling are about competition for place, about getting our way, about assisting upon our rights. This is insecurity that flows from not knowing our identity. This is thick in American Christianity, especially political Christianity. And when I say political Christianity, I'm using a little c because there's not a lot of Christ in it. Arguments ensue about who's most holy. Arguments ensue about who is able to, to, to pull from Scripture the most truth, or at least the right truth, or then even who has the, the truth. We have examples of people for, that, that follow Jesus for 20 years, but when we stay in spiritual intimacy, we're not talking about following Jesus for 20 years. We're talking about following Jesus for one year 20 times. A one-year relationship because we're unable to rest in the knowledge that we are the beloved of Jesus. When we don't know our identity, we quarrel and we're jealous. When we don't know our identity, the progression of looking like Jesus slows. So this run-on sentence from Paul really is the key to breaking out of spiritual intimacy, or infancy. Because this run-on sentence from Paul calls us to the knowledge that we're chosen. Not only that we are chosen, but we are chosen. When we can recognize, I'm chosen, and then I can see the chosen in you, and you see the chosen back in me, the resulting security of that knowledge does not leave room for jealousy or quarreling. Chosen for what really is kind of what we're talking about today. Chosen for what? And this just, I don't know that there's anything more cool than this. And I'm not given to hyperbole, so that's, that's a big statement. There is nothing more cooler than this. Chosen for adoption by the Father. Chosen for adoption by the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, the Creator God chose you. Adoption is the giving by God of the status and privileges of being His children, His blood children. God adopts those who believe in Him, and He grants them the benefits of His salvation. 
while this is, is true and accurate for a definition, think about this. To adopt is to choose. To adopt is to say, I want you for a child. For a parent, is there anything more love that demonstrates love than the fact that, that man, I actually want you. My kids are in the room. I do actually want you guys. When we look at this, adoption, he chose to adopt. It means that God sees you. Not only does it mean that God sees you, God has seen you. In his sight, everything that you have ever done has occurred. Nothing that you have done has occurred outside of his sight. With the reality of who you are and what you've done. With the knowledge that not only the knowledge, the presence, he, was, he witnessed it, he was there, he saw everything. With that reality, he makes a transaction. You paid for by his son Jesus. This fits into his nature, and it fits into his plan. His plan demonstrates that he has been in the adoption business for a while. We see first that God adopts the nation of Israel as one phase of his plan to bring reconciliation. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, You've been set apart as holy to the Lord your God. He has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. That's, that language, it's important, and it takes that, that chosenness to another level. He didn't just choose just to have. He chose to be his own special treasure. Romans 9 verse 4 they're the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them, made covenants with them, and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. In adopting the nation of Israel, he calls the nation of Israel his own son. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. This phase of the plan, this initial adoption, this adoption of the nation of Israel led to the coming king, the Messiah, that would extend this adoption from the nation of Israel to all those that would place their faith in God. This adoption that began with the nation of Israel now is extended to those that believe that God is who he says that he is and is doing what he says he will do. For those that believe, after we believe, our identity is rooted in the reality that we are adopted into the family of the king, and we are indeed children of the king. This is not a small deal. First chapter of the, the Gospel of John says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. 
They were reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I see all of that. But for me, I need some more. It almost, it, it almost seems too good to be true. How does this actually work? How does this adoption actually work? Also, there's these, these moments where I don't feel adopted because I allow the outside circumstances to really define the relationship. Adds another layer to the difficulty here. That question also can become more difficult when we take a look at our own, our own culture because in, in our own culture, everything, including relationships, is commodified. Everything is a commodity. Everything is for sale. Everything has a price. So how does, how does one come about this reality of adoption? That, that really the, the price wasn't something that I paid. I'm also starting to, to come back a little bit and thinking about the fact that he saw all of the things that I've done. He sees all the things that I do. He's going to see the things I'm going to do. How on earth does this make any sense? How do we come about the reality of adoption? What we see in Scripture is that believers in Jesus are adopted as an outcome of a handful of things. We're adopted as an outcome of predestination, of redemption, of justification, of grace, and by the final victory of joining Christ in the resurrection. All of that because of God's unfailing love. When I say that believers are adopted as an outcome of predestination, what I mean is that this is a theological way of saying that God had a plan. And he's working out the plan as he designed. We have an intentional God. This is not haphazard. What we see before us is not a plan B. This is the plan that he had from the beginning. From creation forward, this plan has been unrolling. And so we are adopted because we are a part of his plan from the beginning. We just saw that um, using a little bit of punctuation in that run-on sentence. In verse 5, Ephesians 1, 5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. This was his plan, the plan that he wanted, the plan that he intended we also know that believers are adopted as an outcome of, of redemption. Galatians 4, 5 said that God sent him to buy freedom for those who were slaves to the law so he could adopt them as his very own children. We're starting to see how intentional this really is. We cannot escape the reality of adoption if we're in Scripture at all. Believers are adopted as an outcome of justification. Again, in, in Galatians, this is time in chapter 3, let me put it another way. 
The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We also see adoption from the grace of God back into our run-on sentence. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, again, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through, through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Jumping into the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 16, really strikes to the heart of, of what we can feel in this prophecy. Give her this message from the sovereign Lord. You are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That was an ancient slam right there. That was not a kind thing to say. On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed. You were rubbed with salt. You were wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. It's not fun scripture. One of my favorite words in scripture, though. But I came by and saw you were there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood as you lay there. I said, live. When we read through this, I know that resonated with some folks here. When, when we get to that, that verse 4 of this passage, on the day you were born, no one cared about you, I know that that can strike pretty deep for some of us. When we think about this, this baby that was left That can resonate. We can look back on our life and feel, at least feel spiritually, how that might have happened to us. The reality is that the Lord sees that. The reality is that not only does the Lord see that, but because of this plan that he has for us, the reality is that the Lord sees that. He looks at you and he says, live. Romans Chapter 4, 16. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. We are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. This gift is freely given for those that have faith. We see throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, to be reconciled to God 
means to place our faith in him and through this we are adopted as his own children we take on the identity of sons and daughters of the king and we can rest in the peace that comes from knowing that outward circumstances be damned we have the victory So we need not quarrel. We need not hold jealousy. We need not compete. We need not posture. We need not fight for what's ours. Uh, we, what we have is treasure. Treasure beyond treasure. What we have is the love of a father that chose us to belong to him. This run-on sentence testifies to our identity as children of the loving God. Because of this, because of, of the choice that God made for us, the final adoption of believers will occur at the resurrection. Romans chapter 8 says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as, as his adopted children including the new bodies he has promised us. I cannot wait for that day. 1 John chapter 3 says, Dear friends, we, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Our collective identity, not just the individual, but together, us, collectively, is found in our status and privilege as the adopted children of God. No more are we individuals competing for, survivals, for survival. No longer are we slaves to the world. No longer are we in this world alone. No longer are we rubbed with salt, wrapped in cloth, laid in a field to die. No longer do we have to strive to achieve. Anyone in here need to hear that right now? No longer do you have to strive to achieve. No longer do we have to fight to scratch out meager victories. Galatians chapter 4, 7 through 9. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. Since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that, that, did, that do not even exist. Anyone ever been a slave to a so-called God that doesn't even exist? So, know, so now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the, to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? John chapter 8, 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if, a son, if the son sets you free, you are truly free. 
what Paul gives us in this run-on sentence is a call to identity, and that identity is adopted by the king. The identity is you are a child of the living God. Because you are a child of the living God, nothing else matters. Every promise that we have in Scripture fulfilled for you by the loving Father. So as we turn back towards worship this morning, where we leave this run-on sentence is to know our identity is to walk in freedom. If the way we're walking right now doesn't feel like freedom, awesome. I know how we can get that, that corrected in a hurry. To walk in security, to know that because of his unfailing love, we have been adopted into the family of God. This is how we walk into freedom. And if you need help with that, we, man, we're going to be praying that up for you today. We are full heirs to the kingdom. We are not alone. We walk through the peaks and the valleys of life together as a family adopted by the king. Together, chosen, secure. Our activated identity calls us to be a family and to join the family business.